This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Save the date for the grand reopening on May 14th and 15th after the most extensive and transformative renovation in its nearly 200-year history. It's your history museum, your story. Details at virginiahistory.org. Welcome to episode three of season six of the How We Got Here podcast. Rachel DePompa here, your host through this journey. This week, we have three stories, including one of my favorite pieces of audio ever. And we're going to dive into an incredible journey of the human spirit. Plus, we are revisiting the telling of one moment from America's past that's turning 400 years old. This week, we are turning back the clock on the week of March 21st through the 27th. Imagine it. Your only way out. The only way to survive torture, daily beatings. The only way to free yourself from chains is to cram your body inside a wooden box the size of a dog crate and ship yourself in the mail. It was truly a a heinous institution that people would do just about anything to escape. The opportunity to be a full human being that you know you are is so great. And it's such an allure and that that idea of being free is so strong that you're willing to do something like this. On March 23rd, 1849, Henry Box Brown, a man enslaved in Virginia, seals himself inside a wooden crate and with the help of friends, is placed on a train heading north bound for Philadelphia. To help us tell this unique and truly mind-boggling story of the human spirit, we've enlisted the help of a first-timer on this podcast. My name is Brittany Hutchinson. I'm a curator at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Are you a Virginian? I am not a Virginian. I'm a Chicagoan (laughs) from Illinois and When I was growing up, we would go to Virginia quite often because my grandmother lived in Virginia, in Hampton in particular. So I would, I'm a a sometimes Virginian, officially now in Virginia now. We totally accept sometime Virginians. I've only (laughs) been a Virginian for 20 years. Brittany's background is archeology. span She got her bachelor's degree from Wayne State University in Detroit, and then her master's degree from Morgan State University in Baltimore with a focus on African-American historical archaeology. She says Henry Box Brown's story should resonate with us all. We can't lose sight of how severe and how violent and how deadly the institution of chattel slavery in the United States was. We have to remember that history so that we can understand you know, the ramification, the consequences of that institution as they, you know, manifest today. 
Henry Brown was born in 1815 or 1816. The records are murky on his early life. He was born enslaved in Louisa County, Virginia. He moved to Richmond to work in a tobacco factory at the age of 15. His life was very common for those times, very, you know, difficult, very harsh. It's just sort of a constant sort of need to produce and sort of being an enslaved person. There's the, the litany of issues that one faces and one has to sort of overcome. In 1836, we know he married Nancy, an enslaved woman owned by another master, and the couple had at least three children. In a true example of the absolute lack of humanity during this time in American history, in August 1848, Nancy Brown's owner suddenly sold her and the children out of state to a plantation in North Carolina. In some accounts of this story, Nancy is actually pregnant with their fourth child. Imagine standing with tears in your eyes, watching enslaved people in chains, including your own family and unborn child, taken away forever. You are helpless to save them. If you do have family, if you do have children, to kind of make the decision to launch out on your own is something that's quite remarkable. Oftentimes for enslaved folks, if they did, when they did self-emancipate, they would sort of try to find a way to reconnect with their family so that could possibly be part of the story. But of course, because you know the, the documentary record is not necessarily fully intact for African-American lives, it's hard to really sort of nail some things down. After months of mourning his loss, Henry resolved to escape from slavery, to leave Richmond. Brown had nothing to keep him in Virginia now, and he concocted a plan with the help of a free black dentist and a white shoemaker. It sort of, I think, leads to sort of this very creative way that he finds to self-emancipate. He did list some help from some friends, a choir members, and also a white sympathizer named Samuel Alexander Smith to help him sort of make his escape. The plan? To put Henry in a box labeled dry goods and ship him by train to Philadelphia. Samuel Alexander Smith contacted a white abolitionist at the Philadelphia Anti-Slavery Society. Again, he had some help from some folks who were willing to, to take the risk of assisting him in his, his self-emancipation. The story goes that his friend Samuel Smith shipped him <laughs> by the Adams Express Company in a box that was not very big at all. Remember what I said about a dog crate? This box was just three feet long, two feet wide, and just two and a half feet deep. It was lined with some cloth for a little bit of comfort, a little bit of food and water to kind of make his, his trip survivable in some ways. The different sort of modes of transportation that one would sort of take for this journey is, you know, you're, you're gonna end up on a train, you're gonna be on a ferry, you're gonna sort of have these different motions and feelings across this journey. It shipped up to the Philadelphia Anti-Slavery Society. The box is turned in all directions. It's flipped upside down at times. For 27 hours, he's inside it. 27 hours. 
Imagine being in a box for, for over 24 hours to ship up north to Philadelphia. I mean, one can only imagine like what was going through his mind. And as you start trying to figure out like what type of, you know, vehicle he's on or how he's moving or who's in handling this particular crate that he's in, it's, it's quite a remarkable story. His friends had cut a hole in the box for air, and it was nailed and tied with straps. In large words, they put this side up. Remember, it's only two feet, eight inches deep and filled with not only Henry, but the overwhelming fear of being discovered. Think about it. The stakes couldn't be any higher. Make a sound, cough, anything, and you're discovered. You will most certainly be sent to Richmond with unfathomable punishment awaiting you. Like, what's your story if, if someone finds that you're in this box? And then for the people who helped him, I think there's, you know, we tend to sort of think of abolitionists as these very courageous folks, which they were, but they were very much in danger themselves in a lot of cases of severe punishment by law and sometimes even death if you if you are more vocal about your um, anti-slavery rhetoric and, and views. So it's not just, you know, you know, Henry Box Brown himself as the only person taking risks. There's the folks who are helping him out who may know that he's in transit to Philadelphia. Henry wrote about his journey later in life. He said he was, quote, resolved to conquer or die. I felt my eyes swelling as if they would burst from their sockets and the veins on my temples were dreadfully distended with pressure of blood upon my head. At one point, Henry thought he might die, but fortunately two men needed a place to sit. And I'm quoting again. So perceiving my box standing on end, one of the men threw it down and two sat upon it. I was thus relieved from a state of agony, which may be more imagined than described. really sort of reflects the the harshness and the the turmoil that people were forced to endure for so long that this was sort of an avenue to to freedom and even in that freedom was uncertain where right? you didn't know what was on the other side of it so i think when we when we consider the institution of slavery we we understand that it was you know a very brutal violent institution but it permeated through every facet of life for african americans and for folks who wanted to assist African-Americans as well, it was a sort of a constant looming fear, a constant looming dread to know that your days in and out would be controlled by someone else through means of violence, through means of, of other types of torture. When the box arrived at the Philadelphia Anti-Slavery Society, four men opened it. When he arrived, his sort of first words was, how do you do, gentlemen? <laughs> the box was opened up. And then you, of course, recited a poem, you know, as part of his sort of religious and spiritual practice. Brown told them, quote, I waited patiently on the Lord, and he heard my prayer. The story goes, at that moment, the four men christened him Henry Box Brown. having himself shipped to an anti-slavery society was probably the best option 
that there's, you know, it's likely that the people who receive, you know, your you as a shipment are going to do what they can to protect you or going to do what they can to advocate for you. So it's about luck in this case, trust and faith and luck. Brown would go on to share his story wherever he could. He gave speeches and performances. He wrote a book about it. He tells his story. He shares the the stress and the troubles of being enslaved and about sort of this miraculous self-emancipation. And this is also something that, you know, other folks were attempting to do the same thing that he did, but they, you know, of course, were caught. So I think he felt a sense of, I don't want to say pride, but wanting to prove that there is a way to do this and, and how to become emancipated and wanting to sort of document his story, which is really important for us as historians because we have that record to, to sort of rely on, to fall back on. He became a sort of a performer of sorts and went on a circuit to share his story and you know, offering this sort of perspective to to folks who would listen. Samuel Alexander Smith, the man who helped him, attempted to ship more enslaved people from Richmond to Philadelphia. On May 8, 1849, he was discovered, arrested, and eventually sentenced to six and a half years in prison. James Caesar Anthony Smith, the free black man who helped Brown, was also arrested for attempting another shipment of enslaved people. But he fared better than Smith. He had a mistrial and eventually joined Brown in Boston. Brittany says Brown's incredible journey is a lasting reminder why we can't forget the ills of our past. They shine a light on the ingenuity of the human spirit. not only speaks to how, you know, terrible slavery was, but just how the human spirit that enslaved folks carried and never lost and always had within themselves. And they knew that their humanity was fully intact and they deserved that freedom. They deserved the right to be happy and equal. That that's, you know, a, a remarkable thing, I think, um, when we think about what humanity is willing to do to assert itself and to, to free itself. You can't take that away from people. I think that's the story that I would sort of wrap up when we talk about Henry Box Brown is that no matter what happens to human beings, you can't take humanity. March 23rd, 1849. An enslaved man in Richmond, with the help of friends, ships himself to freedom in Philadelphia. A dangerous and daring escape inside a tiny wooden crate. Henry Brown, a powerful symbol of the Underground Railroad, a man who would rather risk death living in a box than continue to suffocate in slavery. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where digital resources reach nearly 4 million people yearly, and collections of more than 130 million items tell the stories of Virginians. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. Forbid it, almighty God! My brother John and executive producer Colton Weekly have tried and tried to forbid this moment. 
I know not what course others may take. They don't win today. This speech will shine. But as for me... And me. It's happening, folks. Give me liberty! Oh, give me death! What a release and relief. I am happy to say the moment we always come back to every season of this podcast is finally here for real, for its own segment. March 23rd, 1775, Patrick Henry signals the coming revolution, making his impassioned plea to the Second Virginia Convention at St. John's Church in Richmond. And that's where I find myself for this episode, sitting on a pew inside the 280-year-old church. In the same space, Patrick Henry once stood to encourage his fellow Virginians to form armed militias against the British. This is the original church. It is the oldest church in Richmond. It is also the oldest graveyard in Richmond. To give you a frame of reference, Richmond was founded in 1737. When this church was founded in 1741, Richmond had a population of about 200 people. It was very small. St. John's Church is in the city's Churchill neighborhood. And you just heard from Stephen Wilson, the executive director of the St. John's Church Foundation. We're a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to spark a global appreciation for understanding the role that Patrick Henry's liberty or death speech had in setting America on its path to liberty for all and to ignite the public's commitment for preserving the historic site where it happened. Several weeks out of the year, the nonprofit hosts reenactments of this influential speech at the church. Now that's separate from St. John Episcopal Church, which has services in the building every Sunday at 10 a.m. So this piece of history is still an active place of worship. Stephen's been with the foundation for two and a half years now, a native of Chesterfield County, Virginia. Uh, We've been doing these reenactments since the 70s. Next year, we will have an all-women's reenactment. So it will not be our version of Hamilton, but it will be something similar. Come on, y'all have known me long enough now. Always a fan of making history come to life and just making it fun. Patrick Henry, who's originally from Hanover County and would be a future governor of Virginia, gave what is arguably the most important speech in American history, which contained that legendary phrase at the Second Virginia Convention. Before we dive into that, you need a little backstory. Let's go back to 1773. We've got the tea tax. The colonists did not like these taxes. They did not like the Stamp Act and, you know, the Molasses Act and all all of these different taxes. But the tea tax was the one that really kind of set them off. That tax went into effect in mid-1773. By December of 1773, we have the big event that everyone knows, the Boston Tea Party. 
And England is not too happy about the Boston Tea Party, and they pass measures that in England are referred to as the Coercive Acts. In the colonies, they were referred to as the Intolerable Acts, and the retaliation against Boston included the closing of the Port of Boston. The English really restricted Boston's local economy at the time, and Virginia's House of Burgesses, which is what they called local elected leaders, its members were watching this unfold closely. And in 1774, they have a day of fasting and a day of prayer to sympathize with the Bostonians. The royal governor of Virginia, who's in Williamsburg, he's a gentleman by the name of Lord Dunmore, he's not happy about this. And he abolishes the House of Burgesses, so they no longer exist. Think if that happened today. The General Assembly is just gone. And no more General Assembly. I think that would be a major news story. Um, but that's what happened in 1774. Now, these members of the House of Burgesses, they decided to continue to meet. They met in Williamsburg in 1774, and then in March of 1775, they meet here. They chose to meet in Richmond for the second convention for two reasons. Number one was they didn't want to meet in Williamsburg. What if Lord Dunmore sent the troops in? Bad things could happen. So they wanted to have distance between Williamsburg and here. Of course, it's a 50-mile distance. In today's terms, you drive on I-64, you're in Richmond in under an hour. But we're talking about 18th century transportation, horses and dirt roads. Back then, that was quite a haul. There were spies along the path to Richmond that would have signaled to the folks who met here if the troops were on their way. And then, of course, the, the members of the House of Burgesses, or the former members of the House of Burgesses, would have scattered into the woods. They needed distance, number one. Number two is they needed a place to meet that was big enough to house the amount of people that, that, that they thought would be here, which ultimately was about 120. This was the building that could do that. The church offered the perfect protections for the men. Since its founding, Richmond had grown to a tiny city of about 600 people. Richmond was a few blocks around this church. Now, there was no West End, <laughs> you know, there, there was no North Side back then. You know, Churchill was your city of Richmond. The meeting started on March 20th, 1775, and many famous people, included in the writing of the Declaration of Independence, were there. Patrick Henry, the delegate from Hanover County, George Washington, who was then Colonel George Washington, Thomas Jefferson from Albemarle County, we all know these names. And then there are gonna be other leaders of the day, men like Peyton Randolph, uh, Thomas Nelson, Richard Henry Lee, the treasurer of the colony, Robert Carter Nicholas, Edmund Pendleton from Caroline County, many of the leaders of the day. This is at Benjamin Harrison. These are the who's who of Virginia. It's no secret here. These are all white landowning men. They met for days and not a lot happened. That's because March 23rd was the main event. Patrick Henry is going to propose a resolution. And the resolution is for Virginia as a colony to arm itself and establish a well-regulated militia. And this is a hot topic. If it passes, it means Virginia would militarize itself in readiness for war with England. They saw what happened in Massachusetts and there is concern that what if that happens here? What if uh, the Chesapeake Bay is closed and Virginia cannot send its products back to Europe? 
that would choke off the, the local economy here in Virginia. So there was a certainly a concern. As with politics today, before Henry even uttered a word, people had strong opinions. Some are for and some are certainly not for. Men like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, they are for this measure. Men like Edmund Pendleton from Caroline County and Robert Carter Nicholas are adamantly opposed to this measure. They say it's rash. They say it, the, the measure pushes too far and that it is treason. Everyone is giving speeches and arguing. Henry's speech was set for the early afternoon. Everyone waiting for his resolution to be presented. Henry hears some of the delegates providing their, their arguments against. And then Henry rises out of his seat. And I say rises because Henry is a rover. You know, when he gives his speech, he goes up and down the aisles and walks around the church. Whereas the other delegates, they, they do not do this. And he gives, in our reenactments, it's about an eight minute speech. I mean, it's, it's pretty lengthy. Our chains are forged, their clanking may be heard upon the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable, and let it come. I repeat it, sir, let it come! Mr. we speak for peace, sir! It is in vain to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. And probably one of the most interesting things about this speech, Henry didn't write it down. It was all off the cuff. He did it in the moment. Henry, throughout his career, was not one who delivered speeches from notes. He didn't have notes. If you come to one of our reenactments, you'll hear an, an eight-minute speech that will be word for word what we believe he said, but it is what we believe he said. He had a, a biographer in the early 1800s who kind of cobbled together the speech from accounts of persons who were here on March 23rd, 1775, but there was no word for word transcript of the speech. But we do know he did end with that famous last line. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Give me liberty or give me death became a rallying cry among the colonies. They actually printed it on, on shirts. Remember, the church is filled to capacity at this time. 120 men, people were looking in through the windows to hear the speech, giving us a little how we got here rabbit hole. Edward Carrington could not get into the church. The church was full. Edward Carrington is looking through a window and kind of tippy-toeing and kind of peeking over and he sees Henry, you know, just inside the window deliver the speech and he is so moved by this speech, he says, this is where I want to be buried because the event was so, you know, so important to him. And his grave is literally, you know, I'm looking out the window now, is on the other side of that window. It's, it's where he stood. And so he's one of the, you know, the oldest graves that we have here. You can imagine if he was so inspired to be buried there, he'd be quick to join the militia and be part of the movement. When Henry delivers that last line, the church erupts in chaos. 
Edmund Pendleton says, no, Henry, you've gone too far. This is rash. And Robert Carter Nicholas says, this is treason. And there's a lot of arguing back and forth among the delegates. Is it similar to what people have in mind when they think of overseas in England? The so that, that, that's the analogy that, that I have in my mind, the House of Commons, absolutely. People shouting over each other. Shouting over each other, people trying to get you know their two cents in. It's Richard Henry Lee saying his piece, and then it's George Washington saying, you know, we need to do this. And, and Henry, you know, of course, saying we need to do this and others saying we don't. After the rabble and squawking subsided, they take a vote. No record of the vote survives today. All we know is this. The resolution passed. It was close, and that allows Virginia to establish a well-regulated militia. Give me liberty! Oh, give me death! These seven words have lasted generations, a rallying cry with a meaning still profound to this day. You know, 1989, Tiananmen Square in Beijing, China, there were students that had give me liberty or give me death banners. 2021, Marcus David Peters Circle in Richmond, the Lee Monument, and at the base, somebody had spray painted liberty or death, 2021 here in Richmond. March 23rd, 1775, Patrick Henry rises from his seat, roves around St. John's Church, and commands a room into rebels. He cried out for his freedom, declaring he'd die trying. Three weeks later, the first shots were fired in Lexington and Concord, sparking the fire that lit a nation. Four hundred years ago this week, March 22nd, 1622, the Powhatan Massacre, also commonly called the Jamestown Massacre, a surprise attack by the Powhatan Indians against the English settlers. That's at least how it was written about in the history books for generations. I think that the words massacre and uprising like many other scholars of the period, is, is completely inappropriate now understanding the context of the exact situation. Something like an assault on the English colony is more appropriate because to use the word massacre and uprising implies that the native members of the Powhatan Paramount Chiefdom were effectively subdued by the English settlers who had come to Virginia's shores by 1607, which is far from the case. As is often what happens in the telling of American history from this time period, we have a one-sided account with no consideration to how this event unfolded for the people on this continent first. I think that this is an important time 400 years after the fact to kind of revisit how this event is thought of. The English, as I, I like to you know, point out, were allowed to settle at places like Jamestown where it was marginal and where they could be kept under control. And when treaties were broken, agreements were breached, and just, you know, the civil code of contact between native and newcomer ended up going south, 
that's when you have things that precipitate into what occurred on March 22nd, 1622. And to help us on this journey to understand what occurred on Good Friday of 1622, we are bringing back longtime guest Luke Pecorero. He just recently left Virginia and the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. I have moved just a little bit further south to uh, South Carolina, where I am the director of archaeology at the Drayton Hall Preservation Trust. Drayton Hall is a really phenomenal historic 18th century plantation that's located just 12 miles from the uh, city of Charleston. Very important house architecturally, but there's an awful lot to unpack with the landscape from a Native American presence to an army of enslaved workers and then to a phenomenal, you know, post-Civil War and Emancipation period occupation too. Just because he moved doesn't make Luke any less of an expert on the Virginia indigenous people from the colonial era. He's also one of my favorite guests to have on this podcast. So let's get going. When this assault happened in 1622, there were probably, give or take, a little over a thousand English settlers clinging to isolated settlements on the shorelines of the James and York Rivers while there were probably upwards in the neighborhood of 18,000 members of the Palatine chiefdom. A very, very unequal balance there to be able to use the term massacre and uprising. The way that this event is viewed now is more as an attempt to kind of bring the English settlers back under the fold of the Palatine paramount chiefdom on behalf of Opikankanu and his related brother, Opichapam, who had succeeded Palatan as the paramount chief of the tribes, but also to humble and humiliate the English settlers into, you know, kind of coming back into this chiefdom and support the Powhatan. Often called the Powhatan Indians after their paramount chief Powhatan, they had been at peace with the English since 1614. That's when the marriage of Powhatan's daughter, Pocahontas, to John Rolfe had put an end to the first Anglo-Powhatan War. But in 1622, Powhatan and Pocahontas were dead, and the English had spread deep into Powhatan territory. Peace was waning. And then Opichapam and Opikankanu effectively kind of assert control and dominance over the tributary tribes of the Powhatan. They're the two real power brokers within the Powhatan chiefdom. Opikankanu is, of course, well known to the English, as is Opichapam, as uh, prominent leaders of warriors and trained bands. And it's on March 22nd, the two organized this attack, a show of force and an attempt to regain control. I, I don't think that there's any one singular episode that sparks this conflict and the so-called surprise attack on the English settlements. Some historians in the past have pointed out the fact that there was a well-known and, and popular war chief amongst the Palatan known as Nematnau, or as the English called him, Jack of the Feather. He met his demise at the hands of English settlers in early March 1622. And that has kind of been pointed to as the tenuous start of this uh, conflict, but that remains to be seen. I mean, there's a lot of different power dynamics that you have in the colony that exists. Nematnau's death in early March of 1622 certainly can be seen as perhaps a bit of that catalyst for the surprise attack, but I suspect it was probably percolating long before that transpired. And again, you know, a lot of this has to come down to English attitudes towards settlement in Virginia. It can best be described as boldly intrusive. 
little regard paid to the uh, indigenous people and uh, the taking of land. Many, many, many different affronts that you know sort of challenge the direct rule of the Palatine. You've heard Luke say so-called surprise attack, and that's how this event has been described throughout American history. But Luke says it wasn't exactly a surprise. There was warning that was given that something was on the horizon, but the English settlers were simply too slow to act. And also the settlement strategy of dispersed outlying settlements away from Jamestown that were either not fortified by virtue of neglect or by virtue of the colonists hoping to be able to bring as much acreage under cultivation to be able to turn a profit from tobacco also again remains to be seen. The attack happened early on that March day. And as I mentioned, it's Good Friday. For some planters is going to be a day of rest, a day of reverence. Whether or not the Powhatan know that remains to be seen, but surely they would have been there to observe English patterns and be able to kind of tell that uh, perhaps this was a day where you know they might find more favorable opportunities to assault the settlements. From what we can tell, the Palatine warriors come into some of these dispersed settlements under the auspices of trade, uh, either through food, fish. The white deer hide trade is quite significant at this time as a cash maker for the Virginia colony. It appears to be peaceable from the outset, but then almost within a moment's notice, uh, there's a warning given on behalf of the Palatine warriors and they set upon the English settlers. It's a rather brutal description that we have of the attack and, and what the um, natives end up bringing onto the uh, settlers. But of course, again, history has two sides, right? These are English accounts. We are silent on the Native American side of things. Leading up to uh, 2022 and what this event might mean could shed more light from a Native perspective on what actually happened that day. Those English accounts call the attack a slaughter of men, women, and children. Plantations destroyed and burned. We do know from historians, more than 300 English colonists are killed. By the close of one day's affair, we estimate approximately 347 English settlers are killed outright. And that's a pretty significant blow to a population that numbers, as I mentioned before, just over a thousand. Of the 24 settlements that end up being attacked on Good Friday, 20 of these are upriver from Jamestown. So pushing closer towards Richmond, which again is an important geographic factor because that's really the marrow of Palatan settlement. The Palatan ancestral homeland is up in that area too. The remaining four settlements that are downriver from Jamestown some listeners to this podcast might be familiar with the site of Martin's Hundred, which was extensively excavated by Ivor Noel Hume on behalf of the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, has the distinction of being effectively the hardest hit of the fortified outlying settlements from Jamestown, where 20 settlers are killed outright in that attack, and then many others of the surviving party end up being carried off by the Powhatan and are held in captivity. The four settlements further down the peninsula, near what is now Hampton Roads, do stave off the attack because of the early warning. One of these is a plantation called Mary's Mount, which is where present-day Newport News is, and that was garrisoned by an Anglo-Irish settler named Daniel Gookin, who allegedly carries the word of the attack back to England following this event in March of 1622. This could have been worse for the English, 
Opichapan and Opikan Canoe didn't stay on the offensive. Remember, this was an effort to make a statement, not to wipe the English off the continent. In the end, the attack is a damaging blow to the morale of the English settlers. Remember, 347 out of a thousand are dead. That's more than one in every three. Governor Wyatt, who at the time is the uh, Virginia Company appointed governor, considers fleeing to the eastern shore where it should conceivably be safer for him and his governing body. Eventually, he abandons that idea and does stay at Jamestown. But it's definitely a low point for the colony. Two years later, the English used the story of this day to set a new tone of violence and to assert dominance over the Powhatan. The English used this as a, uh, a way to kind of go out and basically have free reign to wipe out any Powhatan settlement that they come across. And it's a catalyst for further colonial expansion into areas that you know, ended up becoming abandoned during this period. The settlement ends up becoming even more aggressive with successive waves of colonists who then come into Virginia to settle. Over the years, the accounts we've had of this day 400 years ago skew largely to English records and perspective. Luke says the more we learn of the indigenous histories, the more likely we are to understand a day like that from two perspectives, where the truth lies somewhere in the middle. It's just understanding the mindset between native and newcomer, where by 1622, the idea is still to kind of subdue the English enough so that they're subservient and remain under the control of the Palatine. Of course, the English settlers don't see it that way, but they simply don't have the strength in numbers and the ability to fend off attack from a dominant population. Once the events of March 1622 take place, it really does resonate back home in England that one, the Virginia Company needs to be dissolved because it can't effectively manage the colony. If we're gonna to continue to pump money into this, what is this going to look like? And is this toehold actually going to stay? So that's a big part of what ends up happening and the enduring legacy of that Jamestown colony post-1624 when the Crown does assume control. But then again, with the survivors of the attack, it just uh, gives them more of a reason to go out and expand into the interior and make effectively the Palatine chiefdom subservient to the Crown, which is what their mindset always had been. There is still a lot to learn and unpack about this event. I'm hopeful that in years to come, you know, after we get past this 400th year mark, that we'll learn more and we'll hopefully be able to open up more dialogue about events like this. March 22nd, 1622. 400 years ago, Powhatan warriors descended on English settlements to give the outsiders a stern warning. The Powhatan are in control. Instead, this day sparked a new war, lasting 10 years, ending with the balance of power significantly tilted toward the English. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. This episode was written and edited by me, Rachel DePampa. 
And many thanks to digital director Kate Albright and, of course, executive producer Colton Weekly. And a special shout-out to our guest this week, Brittany Hutchinson with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, Stephen Wilson, the executive director of the St. John's Church Foundation, and Luke Pecorero, the director of archaeology at the Drayton Hall Preservation Trust. Next week on Episode 4. The moment I've waited six seasons to tell you about. The fire and the fall of Richmond overshadowed everything that had come before in Richmond's history and influenced everything that followed for a long, long time, and some people would say even to the present day. The day Richmond rose from the ashes of the Confederacy. Plus, the 10th President of the United States is born in Charles City County, Virginia. He was dubbed sort of his accidency since he was the first vice president to become uh, president following the death of William Henry Harrison. And we take you inside a fight for food as women, children, and their families are starving in Richmond. One person's demonstration is another person's riots. How inflation, skyrocketing rent, and a severe food shortage put women at the front door of the governor's mansion. It shows a group of people who had largely been powerless, who had largely been disenfranchised. They were able to grab some political agency and force change. That's next week on episode four. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, and you use Apple Podcasts, Rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. Look us up on Instagram, howwegothereva. We'll be back in your life next Monday.